Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Professional football today is a big, big deal. Multi-billion dollar stadiums, stars, and staff. And yet with all of their regalia, for all of these elite athletes, it still comes down to fundamentals and effort. One of the great coaches of NFL's earlier years was Hall of Fame head coach of the Green Bay Packers, Vince Lombardi. His forte was preparation, an emphasis on basics that bordered on fanaticism. Time and time again, he would come back to the basics of techniques of rudimentary things like blocking and tackling. It is said on one occasion the Packers lost to an inferior squad, which was bad enough. But to lose to that particular team was absolutely inexcusable, he felt. And so Coach Lombardi called a practice for early the very next day on Monday, gritting his teeth staring holes through one athlete after another. Here is what Lombardi said. Okay. Today, we go back to basics. And then, holding up a football high enough for everyone to see, he continued to yell, Gentlemen, this is a football. Now, how basic can you get? These were the best of the best professional athletes sitting there. And yet he reminded them, hey, the bottom line is to get this ball over the goal line. Now, why in the world would a seasoned coach talk to such high-level athletes like that? Well, whatever he did it, I will say this, apparently it worked. Because he led those cheeseheads to three consecutive world championships. Now, why did he do that? Well, he believed that excellence could best be achieved by taking effort, by perfecting the basics. In the final analysis, it really didn't matter how talented you were. You must keep working on your game. And that's my point. What works in football works in our spiritual lives as well. Keep working on your game. Now, I'm not going to stand up today and say, this is a football, but I am going to stand up and say, here is what the Bible says. And I believe that God has given us some basic commands in the New Testament so that we might do our due diligence and put our best foot forward. Here's what Second Peter 1, verse 5 says. It says, and beside this, giving all diligence. The Christian life is not just skating, just kind of coasting. No, it is a life of diligence. Now, to be sure, it's a lot of spiritual work, but it's diligence, none the least. Now, to be sure, thank the Lord, it is a God-graced diligence. 
It's not that we're left on our own. A couple of verses before that verse, it says in verse 3, according as His divine power. I'm glad I don't have to do this thing without His power. He's kind of like that wind behind your back. You know, He just gives you that extra push. Have given unto us all things, thank the Lord, that pertain unto life. Divine power is how we do life through knowledge of Him. That's how we're able to do it. Now, friends, it is the consistent witness from the New Testament that growth in godliness requires diligence, effort on the part of the Christian. Even our Lord stated in Luke chapter 12 and verse 24, Strive. Strive to enter in at the straight. King James word just means narrow gate. Now today, in our current series, The Commands of Christ, we're, our topic is things that you need to make happen. That is, put some effort into it in your spiritual life. Put some elbow grease into your spiritual life. A hundred plus or minus times in the New Testament, you will read a command that says let, L-E-T. Sometimes it says may, M-A-Y, as in let him hear. Now, at first glance, you might get the impression that it's more of a, hey, if you can, then make this happen. But it's not that way at all. In fact, it is not a permissive, but it is a imperative. God is saying, you really need to make this happen in your life. These are things you better do, you need to do, or not do. And so today, some Bible imperatives that we can make happen in our Christian life. You know, few things in the Christian life are as important as just doing what we're commanded. I may have told you the story before, but it bears repeating. There was a teenage boy who had gotten his driver's license. When he got home, he asked his dear Christian father if he could use the car. His father said, well, uh, sit down, son. Let's talk about that for a moment. He said, I'll make a deal with you. If you stay good on your grades... You are consistent with your Bible times, and you get a haircut, then we'll talk about the use of the car. Well, after about a month, uh, his uh, son came back and asked Dad again if he could discuss the using of the car. He sat down, and the father said, Son, well, I'm proud of you. You have kept your grades up, and I've watched you have been reading your Bible diligently. That's good, but you didn't get your haircut, son. The young man waited for a moment, and he said, Well, about that, Dad? He said, you know, I've been thinking about it. He said, you know, the Bible says Samson had long hair. And in all the pictures I see, Moses had long hair and Noah had long hair. Even Jesus had long hair. And that's when his father interrupted him at that point, And he said, yes, son. And they walked everywhere they went. Yeah, maybe we need to make... Stop making our excuses and just do what we're supposed to do. And I believe that's what the Bible is telling us this morning. The commands of Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for this great passage, for these great truths. And Lord, there's a lot of working parts in this message. So I pray that, Lord, it will not be too much. But if it is, Lord, that we will just uh, receive it and then, Lord, come back at another time and just rethink through it. We pray that, Lord, today you will just give us your special grace. And, Lord, help us to do your command. Give us the divine energy to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there are over 900 
If you can imagine wonderful commands in the New Testament. Now we know there are in the Old Testament. These are commands, not suggestions. A hundred or so times of those 900, it says let. Now, when it says that, it is often more of an old English meaning, implying that something that's there needs to be taken away. As in Jesus' words in John chapter 14, verse number 1, he said, let not your heart be troubled. Well, what he was saying was, it was a command, he was saying, don't allow your heart to get so out of sorts. Stop it. Don't do it. Then he said another time, he said, let him hear. He wasn't saying it was a good idea if you hear. He was saying, you had better listen. That's what the idea is. It's not an option. These are things that we had better do or not do. Godly imperatives, divine orders from headquarters itself. Now, we're not going to go through all of the 100 lets, but several of them, enough to give us an understanding of what God is actually requiring of us, and yet not crossing over into some ground that we've already covered and we plan to cover. And so this morning, things that you and I need to make happen in our spiritual life, unconditional requests from an exceptional Lord. And so, continuing on, we had four last week, we'll have four more today. Number five, remain winsome and wise in speech. Work on maintaining a warm manner. Now, if you will look into that amazing epistle, the book of Colossians, chapter 4 and verse number 6, it says, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Let's read that together, would you, out loud? I think it would be good just to kind of do that together. Ready, begin. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Now, the context of this chapter is that it's an answer to chapter 3 and before, where he's talking about a believer's walk, and now he turns to a believer's talk, from behavioral to verbal. Notice what he says, your speech. We're going to talk about your speech. Now he's not referring to be making a speech in front of people. It could be. But he's referring more to our words. He's not talking about a sermon especially. Because the word there is the Greek word logos, which just means words or the total amount of words. It's saying that in all of our words, we want to make sure that we have warm, winsome, and wise communication. You know, verbal communication is such a challenge to keep healthy. God, the Holy Spirit, gives us so many different ideas and commands in Scripture, a good number of them. For example, in the New Testament, in Titus chapter 2, and verse number 8, he says that our words, our verbal communication, should be sound. The word sound there is the word we get, our word, hygiene. So he's saying, make sure that your speech is healthy speech. Life-giving, clean speech. And then in Ephesians 4, verse 29, he said, let no corrupt, no rotten, no spoiled, no putrid communication even proceed out of your mouth. But that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. And so in Titus, he said we need to have healthy speech. In this passage, he said we need to have 
positive speech. Positive. That doesn't mean we can't ever say anything negative. It just means only do so when absolutely necessary. And then in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, he said our speech shouldn't be idle speech. It should be meaningful speech. It doesn't mean that you can't just chit-chat. Of course not. Everybody does that, and it's a good thing. It just means don't be a busybody. And so God is saying not idle speech. And so he said, let your words have these kind of good values. Not only let your speech be just good words, healthy words, but it says let it be always with grace. Let it always be with grace. Now, in the Christian world, we know that word. We would imagine immediately that he's saying do something spiritual with your words. But I don't think actually that's what he's saying in this particular place, although that's not a bad thing and not a bad interpretation. I think what he's saying is that it ought to be in a more sense of the typical uh, vocabulary definition, and that is winsome or appealing or engaging. You could even say charming. Always with grace. And actually, they say that those that know the Greek there say that it's not with grace, actually in grace. Or it is everything about you do is just has an accent of grace. An accent, as it were, that touches everything we say. Now all of us have accents. If you you may think you don't have an accent, but if you go somewhere else around the world, even in the country, they will say, Oh, you have an accent, where are you from? It's interesting, uh, a few months ago I just I saw a little thing, I thought I would take it. It was a dialect survey. It's put out by Harvard. Twenty questions, they said, they can tell within a 95-plus percent accuracy of where you live in the United States. You don't have to tell them anything about yourself. Just answer these 20 questions, and they will tell you where where you live. And so, uh, here is one of the questions. I'll give it to you here. Show the picture up there. There you go. Okay. What is that? Well, that was the question. Look at it closely. Does that look like sprinkles to you? All right. Well, that's that's what probably you might think. Well, now, they gave you some answers. Here they were. Sprinkles, jimmies, sugar strands, or hundreds of thousands, or something else. Well, now, if you lived in the Dakotas, you might say hundreds and thousands. For some reason, that's what they call them. I have no idea. Or if you lived up in Maine, up in the Northeast, or upstate New York, then you might call them jimmies if they're on ice cream, but they're only sprinkles when they're on donuts. Well, for sure, I knew they were sprinkles. That's what I said. And uh, and after I answered all 20 questions, they said, you live in California. I couldn't believe it. Maybe because I didn't call that carbonated beverage uh, soda or pop. I called it Coke. Everything is Coke to me. I don't know what it was, but... They had me figured out for sure. The idea I'm trying to say is, in like manner, all of us have a dialect. And we have an accent to our dialect. Our dialect should be that of grace. That everything we say just pegs us. (laughs) Oh, I know. You are a Christian. And there's no better example of someone who spoke in grace than our Lord Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, verse 22... Here he is, a young Jewish carpenter, and he had grown up in a wood shop in Nazareth at the feet of his godly father, and he went 
because he had been called, given by God a special calling into the ministry, he went and preached a sermon in the local synagogue. And he definitely sounded so different. He didn't sound like the religious leaders of those days. He sounded like they had swallowed a church steeple, you know, barely loaded, you know. But they, uh, no, he sounded different. Notice what they said. Is this not Joseph's son? <laughs> Why? He sounds so different than the other rabbis. Well, he just didn't have that sound about him. He, however, had a sound of grace. In John chapter 7, and verse 46, those who heard Jesus speak declared, these were the officers that were arresting others, and they said, never a man spoke like this man. He had this amazing accent, as it were. Uh, he had this warm, winsome personality that he had a holy boldness. He just had something about him that betrayed where he was from, where he came from, which, of course, he had a heavenly accent. Old Testament Solomon gave us many tongue namers. I love them. There's so many of them. For example, in Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 20, God says our words should be like silver. That is valuable. Valuable words. Words that people can take with them. In Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 11, he said they ought to be like water, refreshing. Like a cool drink of water on a hot day, refreshing. It would refresh others. And then in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18, he said they should be like medicine, healing. Healing words. Sometimes our words aren't healing, but in fact, they're corrosive. Now let's go back to Colossians chapter 4, verse number 6. It says, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. God says you ought to be salty in your speech. Now, typically when we say someone's salty, we say, well, they kind of have a... They say a few uh, words now and then that aren't the best, but this is a little different idea here. Now, what does salt do? It does several things, but one of the things that we most know that salt does is it makes things more savory, more tasteful. I mean, I just can't eat eggs in the morning without salt on them. I just, I try. I tried salt substitute, pepper. <laughs> but, I mean, it helps, but man, I'm telling you what, you got to have salt on your eggs. It's just, it's just one of those things where... You're in and out French fries. You have to have salt on them. And uh, that's the only way. Now, in classical, that's, that's in the Greek, by the way. In classical Greek commentaries, they say that when the Greek would say, let your speech move with salt, they were saying truthful, but with a touch of witty. And that's what he's saying here. Salt. It's interesting how salt is made. You know that the chemical makeup of salt is sodium chloride. Sodium chloride is made of two substances. Sodium, which is an extremely active element, found naturally, but it only exists in compound form, they say. Then the other part is chlorine. Now, chlorine is a poisonous gas. But when combined, they result in the common table salt. A substance that brings out wonderful flavor and also has a trait of being something that preserves. You know, that really is how our words should be. Our truth should be there. It should be definitely something that's real. But it also should be with love, like sodium and chlorine, the best of both. 
love without truth? It's not real love. Truth spoken without love in the heart is not real truth. It's harmful like chlorine gas. God says, don't just give them the chlorine gas and don't give them just the sodium. It's worth nothing. And that was what Jesus said. It's a salt that's lost its savor. Now make sure you put the two together. Winsome and wise. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace. Everything that we say should carry an accent that ah, that person just, he's got the Lord on his side. Seasoned with salt, it should be truthful but loving. And then, notice what he says, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Do you know how to answer every man? You know, in the world we live in, that might be called emotional IQ. You've heard that phrase. That is just being the ability to be a good conversationalist, or as they say, the ability to read the room. Just to be able to kind of understand what's going on and how you ought to say things. Well, thank the Lord. The Bible teaches us here that not only is that a skill that can be worked on, just as on our own, but it's something the Holy Spirit actually gives. It's an intuitive giving to a person to be able to help others just be in a warm and a winsome way. Now, let me give you this morning, and these aren't in your notes, and so this is just extra. This is the cherry on top this morning. Let me give you three C's of emotional intelligence that will help jumpstart our intuitive receiving from the Holy Spirit of how to be a godly conversationalist. The first word is consciousness. Maybe we might say self-awareness. You know, have you ever heard the term, not the place at the time? Well, that's an example of someone who understands consciousness or self-awareness. It's just not the place and the time sometimes to say certain things. Or, you know, you consider a person's age, you consider their gender, you consider their position. And so, you know, the first uh, rule of being uh, having good emotional IQ is just being aware of everything, being aware of who you're talking to, where you're at, when you're talking, and who you are. The second one is compassion, consciousness, and then compassion. That is, when you're listening, put yourself in their skin. Listen to them. Last night I was trying to hear my wife chatting. We were air conditioning was going full blast, and she laughed and she said, "I could be talking Chinese. You wouldn't even know what I'm saying right now." But and but you know the truth is sometimes we are like that. We don't listen to people, but we ought to listen with compassion. That is. Really try to feel what they're feeling. That is what the word means. Come with passion. Feel what they're feeling. And then not only consciousness, being self-aware, and compassion, feeling what they feel, but connection. That is, when you're talking to someone, listen for threads of conversation. And when you hear that thread, you know that's a way that you can bridge who you are between each other. You may not know them, but if they're talking and they say, oh, I'm tired, I, you know, I've been working all day on my house. That's a thread. They just gave you something. Go with it. And use that. That's emotional intelligence. That's being wise and winsome. You'd say, well, why do I even care about all this? <laughs> well, I'll tell you why you care. Because our job is to do all we can to bring everybody around us just one step closer to Jesus. I want to win them for Christ, 
Or if they're saved, I want to help them know more about the Lord. I want to be a winsome and wise person. You see, verbal communication is a unique trait. It's something that God gave no other living organism. Animals can communicate, but they're not verbal. Fish can communicate. I mean, I've gone by those aquariums, and those big old mouths are looking at me. Their eyeballs are always staring at me. I know they want to chew on me, but... Um, and plants, there's, I mean, plants, I guess, have communication. I don't know if they can or not, but I will tell you one thing. Only humans have the ability to have verbal communication. And that's why the Bible is clear. He said it is something that most must be also not only fostered, but monitored. Every born-again believer, what do you say, 70 words in a day? you just in a little cubicle and nobody ever talks to you? Or the average. You know what the average person says? How many words in a day? 7,000. <laughs> well, now if you're giving 70 words a day or 7,000, we need to work on our craft until we see Jesus. We need to be wise and winsome for the Lord. Francis Haverdale, the great hymnist, said, Take my lips and let them be filled with messages for thee. Take my voice and let me sing, always, only for my King. Things we need to make happen in our spiritual life. Number five, remain winsome and wise. And number six, recognize your unique gifting. Now friends, your attitude about yourself has profound influence on your attitude about God, your friends, your family, and your future. And that's why the great apostle told young Timothy, who kind of suffered from some self-acceptance problems, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12, he's kind of a nervous guy. Paul had to talk to him about things he ate and drank. He said, take this and eat this. He said, notice what he said in 1 Timothy 4 verse 12, let no man despise thy youth. Never let anybody despise your youth. That's a command. Let. There's that command again. Do not allow yourself to be despised. Now, let me explain that. He's not saying be cocky and have a proud attitude and tell everybody off. And that's not what he's saying. He's saying don't let people's negative things they do or say don't even phase you. Just let it sail over your head. Literally, don't let it get inside your head. Just say, look, no room for rent up here. Uh-uh. You're not getting up in this head. Now, the word despise comes from two Greek words. Kata forneo, kata, K-A-T-A, which means down, and phroneo, which means to think. So really what the word's saying is don't let anybody think down about you or don't let anybody think that you're inferior. What he was really talking about is his position, not especially him. But notice what he says, don't let anybody despise your youth. <laughs> Interesting word there, youth. Well, how old was Timothy, like 12 or 13? He's a pastor of a church, what? No. The word youth, noetis, N-E-O-T-E-S, was a term applied to men until they were 40. And since until you were 40, you were a youth. <laughs> there you go. So... What Timothy, what he was saying was, look, I know you're younger, 
not a typical elder. That's one of the reasons why they called pastors elders, because oftentimes they were, in fact, older. He was saying, you're an untypical elder. You're younger than normal. But he said, look, do not allow that fact to hurt the dignity of the office of being a pastor. Because your age is not something you can control. But you are called. And so he said, do that what you can about what you can do. That is, keep your attitude. That's something you can do something about. Your behavior, even some personal things like your neatness, etc. Okay, good. Change those things. But you can't change your age. And he said to him, Timothy, just walk in there, head held high, do the office of pastor like you're supposed to. The fact of the matter is, folks, all of us have things about us that are unchangeable. Our family heritage, yes, our biological sex, our true gender. And how you accept those features, which we cannot change, makes a big difference about how we address life. Each of us need to address the fact that regardless of our circumstances, we are God's perfect design intended for accomplishing His purposes. While I was studying this week, I remembered a statement that I had heard from years ago of the words of American singer and actress Ethel Waters. Ethel Waters was the child of a rape victim. And she said famously, God don't make no junk. God don't make no junk. Let me second that this morning, and pardon my grammar, folks. You ain't junk. Nobody in this building is junk. And I love what that amazing Old Testament prophet said, Isaiah chapter 64, verse number 8. O Lord, Thou art our Father. We're clay. We're clay. (laughs) And you're the potter. We're the work of your hand. What he said was, all I am is a clay jar. Now, folks, a clay jar is just dirt and water. Fired up and got all hardened. But molded by a skillful divine hand for a very unique purpose. Now, some pots in this room are delicate and small. But you know what? Those delicate and small vessels hold oftentimes the most precious jewels. Other jars in this room this morning are stout and straight, but you hold a big jug of life-giving water. The fact of the matter is, whatever kind of a jug you are, whatever kind of a vessel, a clay pot we are, you know what? We are all been molded by the hand of a wonderful Savior. And that's exactly what Paul was saying to Timothy. He was saying, don't despise yourself. Don't let your attitude about yourself affect your ministry. Let me say that again. Don't let your attitude about who you are, about what you are, affect your ministry. Then nobody wins. Don't just crawl into your shell and say, oh, I'm not as old as this person or I'm not as smart. No. The fact is, God called you. God put you here. Get out there and be the person you are. Now, I tell you, folks, this truth has a profound influence on your attitudes about God, about your spouse, and 
about your children, about your family, about everything. We're referring today to a God-based self-acceptance. I'm not talking about a fake, worldly, self-esteem garbage that's out there. No. We're talking about accepting the fact that I'm the pot that God molded. Notice what it says, not despising. It brings incredible freedom when we don't despise who God made us. When we embrace the wisdom of God, the goodness of God, we begin to understand that I'm not worse or better than anybody else. I don't have to compare myself. I am a designer model. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. I've always loved this verse. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. Never compare. There is no possible way any of us can compare with anybody else. They are made specially by God. They may be your same age or your gender or seem similar, but the fact is everybody is a unique person. They measuring themselves by themselves, that's where the problem comes. We measure ourselves with each other, comparing themselves among themselves. Not wise. Not wise at all. Listen. Accepting God's design in your life starts when we begin to thank Him for the way that He made us. God loves you. He created you. That means everything about you He created from the weaknesses that maybe have been God-given, the limitations, even birth defects. The fact of the matter is, all of them have been given by God. And it's for a special purpose. And that's why David said, I will thank thee. Psalm 139, I will thank thee, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Don't despise yourself, hate your crime, but not your calling. God has made you into somebody special. And remember, if you do reject yourself, here, just remember, when you reject yourself, you're actually rejecting the God and His work in you. And that's why Pastor Timothy, being in the ministry at such an unusually young age, was such a unique thing. Now, for others, they it's the opposite. It's not they're so young and serving God, but they're so old. And they despise their aging. But each one of us, as we get older, you know, each little thing that reminds us of our age, those are just reminders of the Lord that, hey, choose our time carefully. The Bible says, let them help us to number our days. Now, for some, it's despising their gender. That's a big thing today. In fact, it's so big, it's a really becoming a social contagion. But you should know this morning that God only made two sexes, two genders. And He knows exactly what He's doing. When He chose your gender, God chose you specifically. He was designing that. And if you desire to be part of the opposite sex, that will only hinder you from experiencing what God's best for you. And you need to understand, you're part of a much bigger plan. We're part of this wonderful body called the body of Christ. And when you're part of this body, God is there for a reason and for a place. Let me give you three simple suggestions about being part of the body of Christ and about who we are. Number one, accept yourself. Just accept yourself. You're somebody in the body of Christ. You may not be a strong, broad shoulders to carry burdens, but you might be a 
ear that can listen to others' problems. Not only accept yourself, but be yourself. You know, in the early years, I thought I might try to be like certain preachers. But I soon found out I couldn't be like any other preacher. (laughs) But I could be the best Tim Pollock I could be. I mean, there's only one Mike Robinette and only one Charles Stanley, all their wonderful gifts they have. For me, all I have is my rugged handsomeness and my incredible humility. That's all I have. And so I decided I'm just going to be myself. Accept yourself, be yourself. And then, I know, that's bad. And then give yourself. Number three, give yourself. Every part of the body gives. If your heart, keep on pumping. If you are an eyeball, keep on looking. And if you're a toenail, well, keep on doing what toenails do. I don't know what they do, but keep on doing it. Just serve and give and pray. Give yourself. One of my favorite quotes is from American author and historian Edward Hale. I am only one, but still I am one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something that I can do. Number five, remain winsome and wise. Number six, recognize your unique gifting. And then number seven, retain proper and orderly worship. Here's another command. Well-organized, meaningful worship experience is critical to you and your family's spiritual life. 1 Corinthians 14.40, let, there's one of those commands again, let all things be done decently and in order. Decently. That means properly. The idea there in the Scripture is with plan, with structure, to be supervised. It really means something with symmetry, balance, design, arrangement, kind of like a symphony. You know, you have all these different parts and all these different instruments, and each one's kind of doing their own thing, but it somebody has to lead it, and it all comes together. The word orderly there is a military word. It's a metaphor, really, for the body of Christ, because we're the troops of God. Man, you've got to have an orderly army or it's going to be a disaster. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul has been addressing spiritual extremism, even anarchy in the services, which would result when a Christian, an individual believer, falsely imagined that because they had some kind of a word from God, they had the right to take over a service without recognizing there was certain order and certain proper spiritual authority. It was actually a very typical practice of the day. You may have seen movies or read about the ancient Roman Senate. The ancient Roman Senate was well known for their rowdy outbursts. Paul said, look, don't be like the Roman Senate. They're like crazy people over there. You may have read about the early Athenian Areopagus, early Greek uh, time. They would even have fights up there on Mars Hill. And, I mean, it's crazy. And then there were crazy parties that they would all have, uh, celebrating the god of Bacchus, the god of wine. What Paul is saying is, look, let's not make church into the Roman Senate. Let's not make it into one of these crazy fights or parties. Now, religious zeal is good, 
but it ought to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. He said, let it be decently and in order. Now, that doesn't mean funeral-like. It just means that you can't allow people to kidnap a service, and therefore nothing good is done. Notice what it says in verse 32. The spirit of prophets are subject to the prophets. I mean, when you have the one who is preaching and leading the service, or whoever's leading the service, you need to be subject to that person. The apostle commended, for example, the orderliness of the Colossian church. In Colossians chapter 2, and verse number 5, he said, I was absent with you from in the flesh, but thank the Lord I was with you in spirit, joying and beholding your order. Have you ever seen that part of the verse? He said, I was so impressed by the order that took place in your services and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. You know, sometimes foolishly people will say, you know, I kind of have my own religion, um, and I'm, I'm just a spiritual person. I'm really not into organized religion. Well, I will tell you, the Bible is not against organization in church. Your body is organized. That's why they call the parts of your body organ, because they're organized. An organized church is a Bible church, is a godly church. Now, granted, organization is not the purpose. I will give you that, but it is the means to achieve the purpose that God has for us. Kind of like digestion. You know, when organization is working correctly, you're not really aware of it. You don't know that there's organization. But just like digestion, when it's not working correctly, it's about the only thing you are aware of. And so we want to make sure that we have done things decently and in order. A good number of years ago now, just for information's sake, I thought I would do a visit at a youth-focused Christian concert that was going to be held at the Spanos Center. It just so happened it was on a night that we were out doing some visiting, and so uh, we decided to pop in, and what we did, my partner and myself. Now, I must tell you, I was not prepared for what I witnessed. The scene uttered chaos. Hundreds of people screaming, jerking, bumping, jumping, running, indiscernible lyrics. There was even a mosh pit. I will say it was definitely exciting. But honestly, I could only stay there for a few minutes. Now, let me just say, without any judgment in my heart, in my estimation, somehow that service missed reading 1 Corinthians 14.40. Let all things be done decently and in order. Here's what the Holy Spirit said in verse 33 of the same chapter. He said, God is not an author of confusion. He's not a God of confusion. And excitement's great. It's wonderful when it's done that way. And Christian liberty certainly demands that we must give latitude. But with pandemonium rules, we can be sure God is not the author. Unfortunately, the truth of Scripture is too often set aside anymore so that people can just get involved in an emotional, mystical high. In fact, it's getting so bad, I don't know if you read it, but over here in the Bay Area, people are seeking a deeper experience and just allowing whatever happens, happens. They're even using magic mushrooms now as part of their service. They encourage people to take them before they come to church. Folks, what is the modern church coming to? You'd say, well, how can I have a deeper spiritual experience if I don't use all these props. 
I can tell you, you don't need mind-numbing drugs. I will tell you that. You want to know how we get sanctified? Here's what John chapter 17, verse 17 said. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now, folks, there's nothing wrong with emotion. That's great. But emotionalism and mind-numbing craziness? No, that's not what God wants. I will tell you, I think the best advice of all comes from Scripture itself. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 3. If thou criest, that's emotion. If thou criest, nothing wrong with that. But what are they crying for? Knowledge. Crying after knowledge. And if you lift up your voice, that's emotion. Nothing wrong about being loud, but why? For understanding. That's a different story. If thou seekest for her as silver, that's passion. And search for her as hidden treasure, yeah, that's some feelings there. Then thou shalt understand the fear of the Lord. Does it result in the fear of the Lord? Then we're on the right track. And you will find the knowledge of God. An anonymous writer wrote this, If there is righteousness in the heart, there will be beauty in the character. If there is beauty in the character, there will be harmony in the home. If there is harmony in the home, listen, there will be order. There will be order in the nation. And if there is order in the nation, there will be peace in the world. Remain winsome and wise, Christian. Recognize your unique gifting. And make sure that the worship experience that you're involved in is both proper and orderly. doesn't have to mean like a funeral, no. It just means make sure that there's meaning to it. And then number eight, realize, and this is a sobering truth, realize that rebels against truth will be accursed. Now these are verses I suspect that we rarely hear in church. But it's definitely a part of biblical record. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him, or it's a fact, let him be anathema maranatha. Anathema maranatha. These are two transliterated words, not translated. That means that they are Hebrew words or Aramaic that are left basically original in both the Greek and in our English Bibles. Anathema means accursed or dedicated to destruction. It's used six different times in the New Testament. One time it's translated as anathema, four times as accursed, and one time as cursed. Maranatha is a term which means our Lord's coming. Hunger Bible Dictionary says that Maranatha was actually a common word that believers would say to each other. Before they would leave, they would say, Maranatha means the Lord's coming. Kind of like the Jewish people would say, Shalom. And they would also say, Maranatha. Now, stop for a second. Those seem like two incongruent truths, I think you would say. I mean, accursed and the Lord is coming. Why did God... The Holy Spirit put those two together. Well, it's act, they actually are related. It's a warning. It's a line in the sand. It's a benchmark. The idea is, where's your heart? Here's Paul's appeal. He said, look, Jesus is coming. Are you ready? Or are you cursed? Are you ready? 
or cursed. Because here's the deal. When Jesus comes, there's no more chance. When He comes, your opportunity is gone. It was also used sort of as a comeback for that day when an unbelieving Jew would try to get over on a Christian and say, you're cursed, you're part of that cursed follower of Jesus. And then they could come back by saying, well, they're anatha anatoma, anathema. When Jesus comes, we'll see who's accursed or not. It's interesting that these two words are actually spelled using the same letters. But the viewpoints are at opposite poles. The idea here this morning is this, and that's what we want to leave us with. Are you anathema? Or are you maranatha? Paul expanded on this in Galatians chapter 1. He called it another gospel. Verse 6, I marvel you are so soon removed from him that is called you into the grace of Christ, into another gospel. There's all kinds of gospels, but there's only one real gospel, which is not another, he says. not really a true gospel, but there be some that trouble you and just mess everybody up and pervert the gospel of Christ. Folks, the devil has not stopped over these last 2,000 years perverting the gospel. The devil is literally a pervert. Verse 8, Though we or an angel from heaven would preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Friends, there is only one gospel. The gospel means the good news. Actually, it's the best news. And every preacher is to simply deliver the gospel as is. A pastor, someone who gives the word out, all of us really in that regard, all of us are paper boys. We're not editors. It's our responsibility to put the newspaper on the front porch. We don't throw it on the lawn. We don't throw it on the roof. No, we hand it directly to the customer, as is. And the headlines are not something that everybody always wants to see. Good news, Jesus saves. And we should know that's not always the good news to this world because the devil, the anti-God left, hate that thought, that Jesus is the only one that saves. But I will tell you, folks, it is the real gospel. You know, I talk to people now and then, and they say, you know, I'm looking for something new, or they even say I'm looking for a church that I like. And I always feel like saying to them, you know what, friend? You need to look for a church that God likes, not what you like. You say, well, how serious is this that we're talking about? Here's how serious it is. Here's what, let me give you a, paraphrase, Philip's paraphrase says, if any man preach any other gospel than we have preached unto you, and let me just say it, excuse me for saying so, let him be damned. What Paul was saying, let him go to hell then. If he's going to be that way, then let him choose that. Folks, there are people who are looking for church and they sometimes ask the question, they say, well, um, you know, make sure they preach the gospel. And let me just clarify something. That is not the best question. Do not just say, well, I'm looking for a place that preaches the gospel. You need to ask them, what is the gospel? Because every church has a gospel. And that's what Paul was saying here. He said, there is no other gospel. They may say it's a gospel, but it's not a gospel. If you're ever visiting somewhere or you're thinking about 
being part of a church, ask them, what is the gospel to you? What does the Bible say the gospel is? Because there is no Baptist gospel or Methodist gospel or Mormon gospel or Seventh-day Adventist gospel. There is only Bible gospel. Some people say, well, you know, Pastor, all roads lead to heaven. You know, like, you know, all roads lead to Rome. Well, it is true this, that all roads do lead to God. Because whether you're a believer, an agnostic, or just a anti-God atheist, you will face God someday. It's true. All roads do lead to God. But only one road leads to heaven, and that is the road through Jesus Christ our Lord. In fact, He is the road. He is the way. There's an old preacher I read of years ago that when he first started preaching, he said, there's nothing better than the gospel. He said then as he got older, he got to thinking, actually, there's nothing even as good as the gospel. And then he said, as I studied the Bible more, the more I learned, I finally came to the place where I matured and I said, there's nothing even that comes close to the gospel. And then he said, when I got to be an old man, and many of my friends had gone on to the other side, and he said, when I actually began to kind of see that light more and more, he said, I realized there is nothing but the gospel. And I will tell you, I'm convinced of that so much this morning. Really, when you take everything away, there's nothing but the gospel. And that's what Paul is saying. Anathema or Maranatha, it's your choice. Will you turn your eyes on Jesus or not? Would you please bow your heads with me, please? We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.